Q&A show today. We're going to continue with the questions I wasn't able to cover on yesterday's show due to the time restrictions. We're going to kick it off with Melissa's question on how to pay off a primary mortgage with a HELOC. Good morning. My name is Joshua Sheets. This is the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, Tuesday, January 13, 2015. We're going to get started and just see how far we can go with the time allotted. So let's kick it off with Melissa's question. Melissa, you're up. Hi, Joshua. It's Melissa from Pennsylvania, and I have a question for you. Um, I keep a money journal where I just jot down ideas and books and different things as I come across them. And I was flipping through a page that I had jotted down a note from a year or two ago about paying your house off with a HELOC loan. Um, Essentially, it was, from what I understand, it was you deposit, you create a HELOC, you deposit your checks into it and pay all your bills out of the HELOC, almost using it as a savings account, and in turn paying off more of your principal and decreasing the length of your loan. Um, Basically, I come to you for advice on if that is a legitimate um, idea, um, and also if you have any knowledge of that. Um, Also in the page I jotted down, it must be associated with a book called Master Your Debt and a website, truthinequity.com. Um, any advice you have would be great. Thanks a lot. Melissa, it's a great question. And by the way, I point out and commend to you Melissa's strategy of keeping a money notebook. That might be a useful strategy for some of some other listeners to uh, adopt. It's a good way to keep organized and to have ideas and to organize your thoughts. I personally don't keep a separate money notebook, but I do keep a comprehensive journal that basically has every idea or every thought that I want to remember in the future, and I try to write down uh, resources and things like that. It's a combination of a paper notebook and an Evernote journal. I do have some financial tags in Evernote as well. So I commend that to you. It's a simple a simple solution. So Melissa, it's an interesting question to me, and this is the type of question that I love getting on the show. I was vaguely, I had a guess as to what I thought this would be, but I wasn't sure. I had never heard of Master Your Debt as a book, uh, wasn't aware of it. So I went ahead and after you called the question on, on the voicemail line, I went ahead and bought the book and in order to read and see what it says. And it sounded like an interesting book, so I just got it off of Amazon, the used books, paid a buck or two for it, I can't remember, and was able to get to this chapter. And I do have a little bit of a history with this idea. Let me give that history of the idea first, and then I'll get to the actual idea, and we'll talk about it and see if this is a reasonable idea uh, for us to consider implementing. I remember this years ago when it was uh, was probably five or six years ago, maybe more, when it was popularized with something that I think was called You First Financial. And I think they go by United First Financial now. And it was, I would say, semi-popular at the time uh, to promote this idea, uh, to take and take out a home equity line of credit on your house, and then essentially you put all of your income into that home equity line of credit and you pay your bills out of it. And hopefully by putting in more income than expenses out of it, then you could uh, actually uh, get ahead and pay off your mortgage more quickly. I spent a long time actually sitting in the office of a representative of that company, at least about two to three hours, trying to understand how this product that he was selling worked. And essentially, primarily what it seemed to be was a software package 
to help you track your income and expenses and help you track all of these details. And it seemed, from what I could figure out, that the primary motivation there was the fees for the software package. As I remember, it was a few thousand bucks, something like $3,500. But I couldn't quite ever get my hands on how it worked. Uh, so I was interested in researching this a little bit further. So I got the book, and this is what I love uh, doing the show, that I can have a little bit more time to research these things that I've wanted to research but haven't been able to do. And I'm going to explain to you how the book presents it and some of the details on it and then talk about whether or not this is a useful strategy in my opinion. I've never done it. I've never known anybody that's done it. I have checked out the website. The website is truthandequity.com. I looked through everything I could find there without signing up for a consultation myself. So I haven't gone through the process of actually trying to test it. But I looked through all the information to, to do my best to present uh, an important, uh, an important uh, valuable insight into it. So this, in this book, Master Your Debt by uh, Jordan Goodman, it's chapter six, and it's entitled Mortgage-Free in Five to Seven Years. And I'm going to read just a few paragraphs from it, and let's start with the beginning of the chapter. He says, this whole chapter is a big secret, but it's one you're going to be very happy I am sharing with you. It's a secret that will more than pay for this book. You could use my secret to become completely debt-free in less than a decade. I'm talking about a new way to manage your mortgage and your monthly cash flow so that you and not some banker, get to squeeze the most out of every dollar that, that comes in and every dollar that goes out. Used correctly, this strategy will enable you to pay off your mortgage in as many years as some people take to pay off their cars. The strategy is called equity acceleration or mortgage acceleration. It's not such a big secret in Australia and the United Kingdom, where as many as one in four homeowners are accelerating their mortgages. It's legal. It's not a scam. It's entirely above board. Anyone with a decent credit score and good bill management skills can accelerate the end of their mortgage and other debts by using the system I am going to lay out here. Here is a basic outline of how it works. You finance a new home or refinance an existing one by obtaining a home equity line of credit, HELOC, requiring an interest-only monthly payment for at least 10 years. You use the HELOC to pay off your existing mortgage, if you have one, the HELOC replaces a new or existing conventional mortgage. You send your whole paycheck into the HELOC every time you are paid. This covers your monthly minimum payment and then some. The HELOC becomes the new depository for your income. You pay your bills out of the HELOC as close to the due date as possible. That maximizes the amount of time your money sits in the HELOC, cutting your interest. Any extra money you have left in the HELOC account after you pay your bills and make the minimum interest payments on the HELOC goes toward further accelerating your debt reduction every month. The key to grasping the power of equity acceleration to eradicate your debt so quickly is understanding how interest is calculated in a traditional mortgage and in a HELOC. As you learned in the preceding chapter, a HELOC is a revolving loan that gives you the flexibility to make interest-only monthly payments every month or to make larger payments if you want to. In a traditional fixed-rate mortgage, the monthly principal and interest payment is predetermined and calculated according to a conventional amortization schedule, and the principal is assessed every month on an ascending scale. And he goes on and gives some more details. In a HELOC, interest is recalculated every month on the basis of the average daily balance of the principal owed. 
The more money you run through your line of credit, even if the deposits do not stay there long, the more you are driving down the principal and setting the stage for those interest costs to be calculated on a lower average daily balance. As the monthly interest is pushed down, more and more of your cash goes toward paying off the principal owed, and that results in lower and lower interest charges every month. That gets compounding working for you instead of against you. So that's his introduction to the strategy. And he goes on and gives a couple of examples. And he uses an example in the chapter for Mark and Susan. They own a home in Indiana, 12 years left on a 15-year mortgage with a fixed rate of 5.25%. They owe $192,000 left. And then it goes through and says their monthly take-home income was about $7,500. And their monthly expenses came in at $5,250. Here's the key. The couple was a good candidate for an equity accelerator because they had a substantial positive cash flow. They also had equity in their home, good credit scores, and more important, a willingness to take an active role in managing and controlling their financial future. Goes on and creates some charts and shows that they would actually, by following the proposed plan of mortgage acceleration, they would be paying off their debt in under five years. So instead of 12 years remaining on their 15-year mortgage, they would be out of debt in less than five years. And then gives another example uh, of Megan and, J- Megan and Jared, and I'll skip some of those details. Now, at the end of the chapter, the author sets up uh, some information, and he talks about who it's a good fit for. Here are a couple of important uh, things that you need to know. Do you understand the concept? What the accelerator system does is funnel more of your money into debt reduction and set the stage for you to begin to benefit from this immediately. By converting your lazy money, that's money sitting in accounts without connection to your home equity, such as a checking account, into money that works to pay off your mortgage, you reduce the amount you owe. That cuts your interest costs and hastens the day when your mortgage is but a distant memory. It's not for everyone. The mortgage acceleration concept won't work for everyone. Like the other strategies in this book, it requires discipline. You have to be a smart cash flow manager to make it work. You also have to have high enough credit scores to get a good HELOC and confidence that your income stream will continue. Implementing this strategy will improve your cash flow from day one, but it may not be enough to mitigate the effects of a variable rate loan. This is why I recommend a thorough analysis of your personal finances by a qualified expert before blindly implementing this strategy. If you decide to implement the equity accelerator concept with one of my recommended suppliers, you may be charged for the cost of the software, closing costs associated with the new loan, or a consultation fee. You won't be able to do this without any costs, but done right, the system will be profitable. The risks of mortgage acceleration are these. If you fall back into conventional practice, relying on your checking account for deposits and bill paying, you defeat the purpose of the strategy and could extend the life of your debt instead of paying it off quickly. If you aren't disciplined about paying your bills on time out of your HELOC, you could end up with late fees. If you lose your job and the extra cash flow that makes the mortgage acceleration system work, notice that, and the extra cash flow that makes the mortgage acceleration system work, That leaves you dependent on that open-ended variable rate environment. If interest rates then rise, you could end up going backwards. However, if there is a disruption in income, you can rely on the available equity in the HELOC to sustain your lifestyle until income is restored. In this scenario, the acceleration process will be interrupted, but you won't find yourself in a stressful situation wondering how to make ends meet. 
goes on and talks about how to do it right. He says to do it right, you have to get the right kind of loan. You have to set up easy transfers. You have to make sure you're using the HELOC as the primary depository for your income and that you can do it yourself if you're driven and disciplined, but you need it's probably better to connect one of the companies. And he gives four suggested companies for how to do it. Number one is truthandequity.com. Uh, which is mentioned a couple times in the chapter. And then I went back and checked the front cover. Uh, Truthandequity.com was founded by a man named, evidently named Bill Westrom. And I looked at the front cover of the book, and it says Jordan E. Goodman with Bill Westrom. So he's a contributing author on the book. And that's the, his favorite. Then number two is the Money Merge account with United First Financial. That was the one that was quite popular in years past. No More Mortgage, uh, which is another opportunity, and then Harge Gill's Speed Equity, uh, which evidently started in Australia and grew from there. And then at the end, notice here, he says at the end of the chapter, once you've gotten the mortgage acceleration plan down, there's a lot you can do with it. As long as your line of credit is sufficiently large, you can consolidate all of your other debts into it and get completely debt-free faster than you thought possible. You can pay off your home in five to seven years, and then with this new heightened level of financial expertise, you can use your HELOC to buy a second vacation or retirement home. Don't look now, but real estate prices are pretty attractive. You can also self-finance your next car, self-finance your next tuition bill, or start that side business without having to fill out a million forms and beg some banker. You can be your own banker now. I told you it would be a good secret. So I hope you're sold based upon reading the narrative in the book. It all sounds very compelling. After all, if we could just understand a slight difference of how a conventional mortgage amortization schedule works as compared to a home equity line of credit, interest payment, and amortization schedule, then just take advantage of the arbitrage opportunity. We can get rich, right? I'm not convinced. And I'll tell you why. And this is one of the reason why reasons why I am in such favor of enhancing uh, financial literacy. So much as I did several years ago when I was speaking with the Money Merge account, United First Financial representative, I spent hours trying to understand the concept and went away thinking I was just dumb and that I didn't understand it, but it was the greatest thing ever. And in this one, uh, I spent, you know, I read the whole chapter and I thought, wait a second, is there something I don't know? Is there something I don't recognize? Because yes, I understand how amortization schedules work. But the key is you got to go and look at the charts. And this to me is the big difference. For both of the case studies, there is a before and after chart illustrated, which illustrates the amortization schedule. And I like to look at numbers because if I can understand what's going on with the numbers, I can be more compelled by the evidence. Before I jump into the details of the numbers, I hope you understand the strategy. Essentially, the strategy is you swap out the primary, the normal conventional mortgage for a home equity line of credit, and then every month you're paying it down by the amount of your net paycheck, and then you're increasing the amount of the mortgage by the amount of your bills, which you're simply paying out of the home equity line of credit, hopefully with an account that might have something like check writing privileges to pay your bills with. So assume for a moment that you owe $200,000 on your house and it's valued at $300,000. You apply for a home equity line of credit for $200,000 to wipe out your, your existing mortgage. They go ahead and approve you for that. 
you pay off the with a new bank, you pay off the existing mortgage with the two hundred thousand dollars. Then in that first month, let's assume that your monthly income is ten thousand dollars and your monthly expenses are seven thousand dollars. So you apply the ten thousand dollars that you receive on the first of that month toward the home equity line of credit, that reduces your balance from $200,000 down to $190,000. Then throughout the course of the month, you pay your expenses little by little. And at the end of the month, because your expenses are $7,500, you have increased the balance of the home equity line of credit up to $197,500. Then you do it again in the, in the second month. You apply the $10,000 of income, you drop it down, and so you're balance drops from 197.5 to 187.5. You increase that by $7,500 and you wind up with, what that'd be 195. So now at the end of second month, you're at $195,000. That's effectively how it works. And what I was interested in is, is there actually a way to get an arbitrage by getting a straight uh, conventional, excuse me, by getting a home equity line of credit, where the interest calculation is primarily based upon the you know what the current balance is as compared to the early years of a conventionally amortizing schedule, uh, amortizing loan, where you're paying a lot of interest up front and little interest down the road, uh, and the answer is I don't think so. So if you look at these scenarios, the first scenario that's given in the book, the debtor owes had an original loan balance of $225,000, and at their, and in their third year of their amortization schedule, they owe $192,934. Well, they propose changing that out with a new loan, but there are a couple of bits of details that you need to look hard at. First is what is the interest rate? And in this scenario, the interest rate on the 15-year fixed conventional mortgage is 5.25%. The proposed interest rate on the home equity line of credit is 4.00%. So 1.25% decrease in interest rates. That will make a substantial difference in the amount of interest that is paid over the course of a loan. Now, how frequently is it that you can get a home equity line of credit at a lower interest rate than a conventional mortgage? I simply don't know. I don't know what those current numbers are. I think they change over time. Uh, in general, with something like a 15-year mortgage, the interest rates on these, at least in the last few years, have been absurdly low. Uh, but what's that difference? I don't know. But I'm willing to give them the interest rate. What I'm not willing to give them is this. They illustrate on the first one what the deposited net income is, $7,500 per month. That's what the couple is earning. And then it illustrates what their expenses are. The monthly living expenses are $3,191, and the total monthly expenses are $5,249.72. In the first amortization schedule, it's simply illustrated that that money is spent on cash flow. In the second amortization schedule, it's clear that that money is not spent, but rather that money remains in the debt. And so I ran the math on it, and I said, "Well, what would happen if I was able to, uh, if I was able to actually, you know, do this by hand?" And so I said, "What if the person was willing to put all of that excess excess cash flow into their uh, conventionally amortizing mortgage?" 
And so I took the, I calculated the normal monthly payment, which is about $1,800 a month. And then I calculated what the excess cash flow was, the difference between the expenses and their income, which the difference is $7,500 minus $5,250. And so that was about $2,250. And I added those together. It was about $4,050 per month. Well, if they would just pay a total of $4,050 per month, the normal monthly payment plus that additional amount toward their conventionally amortizing loan, right in five years, they would be out of debt. Even without an interest rate savings going from 5.525 to 4. And then on the next page, how long does it take with the mortgage accelerator? Five years. There's the magic formula. So on that basis, all we're doing is saying we're willing to put all of our excess money instead of being in a, uh, instead of being in, uh, a checking account or in some other alternative investment. We're putting every excess dollar that we have against our mortgage. And you'll be debt-free in five years. My problem with it is that the facts, the numbers, are not illustrated by the narrative. So in the narrative, you think this is something complex and the way I just said it right there, hopefully it's clear. That's why you're out of debt in five years. Interestingly, listen to this narrative. And I'm going to actually read this to you because I want to use this as an example simply to show how you've got to look at the numbers. Let's read about Megan and Jared. Here's another quite different example of how the system can work for a Manhattan couple who don't have the extra cash flow that Mark and Susan enjoy. That's what we just said. Mark and Susan was the numbers I just used. Megan, at 35, earns a salary of $75,000 as an editor at a New York publishing house, and her husband earns $90,000 as an art director. The balance of Megan's inheritance, $50,000, is in a mutual fund that has been returning an average of 8% a year. Megan and Jared bought a co-op in the upper west corner of Manhattan nearly five years ago in Hudson Heights, where real estate prices aren't nearly as high as further downtown. They put $75,000 down on a co-op costing $475,000. Are alarm bells going off in your head yet? One thing I have noticed with financial lies is that they're often embellished with beautiful pictures. It's like the example goes, if you uh, have a fixer-upper that's a handyman special, if you talk about it's quaint and it's rustic and it's uh, antique (laughs) <laughs> Those should be code words for old and run down if you're talking about a house. Why do we need to know that it's a co-op in the upper west corner of Manhattan five years ago in Hudson Heights where real estate prices aren't nearly as high as further downtown? Why do we need to know that she's an editor at a New York publishing house and an art director? Let me continue. They have 25 years left on their mortgage, which has a fixed interest rate of 6.25%. Their combined take-home pay is $9,000 per month. Their monthly mortgage payment is $2,463. When you add in their commuting and parking costs and other expenses, there isn't much money left at the end of the month. Now, how much money would you say is is not not much money left at the end of the month? If you have $9,000 in take-home pay a mortgage payment of 2463 and then commuting and parking costs and other expenses. There, well, there isn't much money left at the end of the month. Well, flip to the next page. It illustrates that their deposited net income is $9,000 and their total monthly expenses are $6,637. 
don't know about you, but that's in my world, that's a pretty healthy amount of money left at the end of the month. That's $2,363 left. That's almost a third of their income available. That's not insignificant. Let's continue. During the five years they've owned the apartment, Megan and Jared have sent their mortgage company over $147,000 in principal and interest payments. Of that, $121,121 was interest and $26,651 was applied toward principal. They still owe over $373,348, or 93% of their original mortgage. If they continue on this path for the next seven years, after 12 years of payments, they will still owe $318,903. They would have absorbed an additional $152,000 in interest costs and would still have 216 more payments before they would be mortgage-free. Are you lost in the details yet? This is another thing that you got to watch out for, and people lose you in the details. All they've done is taken a very simple amortization schedule, which if you've ever looked at an amortization schedule, you should understand, and add an entire paragraph of confusing text, which simply means you drop down to, what was it, line year 15 or so, yeah, year 15, and uh, 22. You drop down to the appropriate line on the amortization schedule and take a sentence to explain what every number means. Be careful when you're reading things like this. Megan and Jared have a couple of options if they are to take advantage of the equity accelerator concept. If they simply refinance their current mortgage into an equity accelerator and Megan keeps her $50,000 inheritance in a mutual fund, they could be debt-free in eight and a half years. This would save them over $262,675 in additional interest costs and their mortgage would be paid off. In comparison with their current mortgage, Megan and Jared would still owe $303,811 of the original balance and $183,836 in additional interest costs at that time. If Megan decides to close out her mutual fund and apply those funds toward an equity accelerator line of credit, Megan and Jared would own their home outright in only six years, nine months, and would save an additional $36,679 in interest charges and be mortgage-free. And he goes on, got the concept. What the accelerator system does is funnel more of your money to debt reduction, et cetera, which I already read for you. So here's why I'm belaboring this point. Was everything that the author wrote on those pages technically accurate? It's all technically true. But what does it miss? You should immediately ask yourself, well, what's the interest rate that Megan and Jared are earning on the mutual fund versus what's the interest rate that they're paying on the debt? And in this scenario, the illustration was that they have a mutual fund earning 8%. That was what was stated in the facts. And they have a current mortgage of 6.25%. And then under this proposed equity acceleration program, they're going to drop that interest rate to 4%. And then we're going to take a mutual fund, which is earning 8%, and use that to pay off the 4% debt. And then we're going to talk about how little interest we're paying. Yes, but how much money would we have paid if we just would we have had if we just stuck with the original? So here's the thing. This to me is a perfect example of how you can take a concept that might or might not be valid, which I'm going to cover again in just a moment. And you can completely twist it into making somebody think it's the greatest thing in the world simply because they're too ignorant to ask the right questions. 
in this example of A versus B, it looks very compelling. After all, in A, they put in there the full 30-year amortization schedule, which is, by the way, is another interesting uh, sleight of hand. They start with the opening balance at $400,000, which illustrates 30 years. And then they show, okay, well, we're in year five. But then in the comparison one, they start that at year one, which is actually year five on the original schedule. And they do that in both of these. So you've got a misrepresentation of data. This would be akin to whenever you look at a chart, and if instead of uh, illustrating the 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 scale of the axis starting at zero and going from zero to 100, the chart maker may start at 80. And then by zooming in and not illustrating the full axis of the full scale of the axis, then the chart maker looks like it's a major problem. Uh, but in reality, it's a very minor variation in data. It's the same thing here. Uh, so it's a, it's a specious uh, false comparison of data. Now, it might look prettier, fine. But it's making it look like a 30-year loan versus a nine-year, when in reality, it's a 25-year versus a nine-year. Just a small thing. But then look at the numbers. So again, their existing loan is 6.25%. They're refinancing at 4%. That's a massive savings, a 25% over 25% cut in interest costs. And then B, in the first payment, they're only making a monthly, a monthly payment of $2,462 on the loan. And in the second payment, remember they have a net income of $9,000 and monthly living expense of $6,600. So let's do the math. What's the difference between those? $9,000 minus $6,637. We've got $2,363 plus the $2,462 they're currently putting. So they're putting $4,825 a month toward the balance of the loan now. So how long would it take if I compare these two things? How long would it actually take to... Come, you know, to pay off the mortgage if we just made those two changes. Oh, let's just ignore the interest rate for a moment. How long would it take if we just put that extra payment toward the original debt, which is what you're doing in essence? Well, the math is fairly simple, and this is why I want you to learn to run a financial calculator. Let's clear our register, put in $373,348.97. Change the sign, put that in as our present value. That's the present value of the mortgage payment. That, that's, excuse me, that's the amount that we owe on the debt. Put in 6.25, hit that number, and let's convert that into uh, a monthly amount. So we're going to hit the button to turn it into monthly amount. It's 0.52% of monthly interest. And let's put in now that 48.25 as our monthly payment. That's what we're going to actually uh, be paying towards the loan. Zero for the future value, and let's calculate the end, the number of, of periods that it would be required. Comes out to 99. Divide that by 12. That equals 8.25 years. So in scenario one, if they keep their existing traditionally amortizing payment, but they put the additional amount available in their cash flow toward that payment, their debt would be paid off in 8.25 years. In scenario B, too, which is the proposed payment, how long does it take for things to get paid off? Somewhere between eight and nine years. So question, is it this magic gimmick of the mortgage acceleration program, or is it the fact that there's an extra $2,363 on top of the minimum payment going toward the debt? That's the key variable. 
Why did I spend so much time on this? In my mind, this is a very important example of what happens every day in the financial world. People create a good narrative and, in essence, divert your attention from what from one thing to the other. It's like a magician where if they're going to do something with the left hand, they want to show you they want to make sure you're looking at the right hand. That's how most sleight of hand tricks work. This is a big deal because the only way to actually understand if this is a good idea or not is to know to look for the interest rate and what the amount of money going to the payment is. Without those two details, you can't make sense of this. With those two details, you can immediately see that all we're doing is putting a bunch of excess money towards a mortgage payment. And this was why, at least in my memory, United First Financial was charging $3,500 for this thing, for this software package. And that's a bunch of baloney. It's a bunch of nonsense. Now, if I'm wrong in my analysis, all I've done is just read this chapter of the book. But if I'm wrong, and any of you listen, and if, jo- if Jordan Goodman or Bill Westrom, if you think I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong and show me where I'm wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. All I did was read one chapter of the book. But to me, that's about as clear of an open and shut case as I can come up with of a total waste of time and just technical truths that are represented in such a way that it's lying. I don't appreciate that. So my hope is to equip you to uh, equip you to spy that and not fall prey to it. So, how could what are some of the concepts that you could apply towards this? Well, number one, I think this is something that anybody could do. Now, I don't know about the actual products. Uh, this that's what happened is the mortgage market changed and the products weren't available and the the home equity the the home equity disappeared for people. And that was why I think the market for that stuff dried up some years ago. So I don't know what's available, what's not. I would have no problem, you know, checking with a guy like him to see is, you know, can I, can I do this? Are there products available? I wouldn't pay them. I wouldn't pay big fees for it, but maybe there's a better mortgage product product, but you, any of you can do this. And in essence, set up a home equity line of credit. And that way, if you're aggressively paying on your principal mortgage, you can have access to the cash if necessary through the home equity line of credit because that's the problem is once you pay down the the debt on a uh, on a mortgage like that then you're stuck where all the money's locked up in your house and it's a much harder to get it out than it was when it was sitting in your checking account uh, it does would have some advantages to have a more flexible uh, mortgage option where you're just paying interest only i actually like the so-called pick a payment loans that used to be available. I don't know if they're still, I don't even know if they're still available, but where you could essentially choose how much you paid every month. And one would be an amortizing payment. One would be an interest only payment. And some of them would actually be a negatively amortizing payment where your balance would actually increase. It wasn't even a full interest payment. Uh, I think that'd be useful to have as an option on a mortgage simply because it keeps flexibility and would allow you to maintain your flexibility. I think flexibility is an underrated uh, benefit in a financial plan. It's always nice if you, you know, just can help save you. And if you suffer a job loss or if you have an unexpected illness or disability, something like that, uh, I, I like having flexibility. Now, there's trade offs with everything. Uh, so that could be a benefit. Uh, but you could set that up yourself. And then if you want to have the money in the home equity, uh, that could be great. You pay it off and then just tap the home equity if you need to with the home equity line of credit. Uh, years ago, and we'll finish up the discussion on this topic with this. Years ago, when I uh, was had that meeting with the representative of United First Financial, what most impressed me about 
what he said was the software that they had created. And they looked at the software. And what was neat about the software is it illustrated how long it would take for somebody to be debt-free based upon certain decisions. And in essence, there was a meter there. And it illustrated, okay, if you spend this $50 on a haircut or you cut your hair yourself, then you'll be you'll save this amount of money in interest and you'll be out of debt this much sooner. And it was almost like an immediate feedback loop in the software. Now, I'm not sure it worked quite as well as he was showing me that it worked, but I thought it was a brilliant idea. And what I compared it to is the idea of having a fork for a dieter. Let's say that you have a fork and this fork shows with every bite whether or not you are adding inches to your waistline and pounds to your scale, uh, or whether you are taking them away with every bite. So if you're eating a bite of chocolate cake, with each bite it says, you know, 0.13 pounds, 0.13 pounds. By the time you finish the piece, you you know that you've gained, you know, 1.2 pounds of, of additional weight. Or if, let's say, you're shortening your lifespan and it's calculating that by the end of this piece of chocolate cake, you've shortened your lifespan by 14 minutes based upon the extra weight that you're carrying from it. But if you're plunging your fork into a piece of, uh, you know, into a green leafy salad, then you can see the numbers ticking up and you can see the weight dropping off and your lifespan increasing. And I thought, how cool would that be to have a magic fork that showed that? Wouldn't that be so helpful? So before I'm about to tuck into a, a, you know, a 2,000 calorie milkshake, I would have a bit of a, a moment of contemplation and ask myself, do I really want this? And I would love to see, and it's just an idea for some of you intelligent people out there, maybe you know of a software package that does this well. I've never seen a software package that does this well, but I would love to see somebody create a personal financial management system that would bring in this immediate feedback loop. And that would illustrate in real time, here's how much longer you are toward your financial independence goal. Here's where you are with regard to you know, your debt payoff. If you choose to avoid uh, dining out instead of uh, you know, eating at home, you'll be out of debt this much sooner. And oh, congratulations, by the way, these decisions that you've made this month where it seemed like it wasn't a big deal because you only saved $327, but the reality is you're going to be out of debt three months sooner. You're going to have your mortgage paid off three months sooner because that's the equivalent to three months of your principal payments on your mortgage balance, something like that. I don't know how to do that, but I would love to see that. And I think it's a a product that would help. You see this happening in the fitness world with all of the biomarkers, I guess it's biometrics, where you know you count, okay, here's how many steps I'm at. And you can see for the day, I'm at this many steps. I, you know, I've been starting wearing one of these Fitbit things. And so far today, I'm at 3,749 steps. Well, I know that's not very much. Uh, so I think we should build some of these tools with financial management. If you are capable of that, then I commend it to you as an idea. Hope that's helpful. Let's jump in and do another question today. I think we've got time. Let's answer Robert's question. We're going to shift gears pretty dramatically here about uh, defined benefit plans. Actually, about uh, non-qualified deferred comp plans. Kick it off, Robert. Hello, Josh. My name is Robert. I'm a frequent listener to your podcast, and I have a multi-part question. And in keeping with the theme of the show, it'll be a little bit on the lengthy side. 
My wife is an executive at a publicly traded utility company. She has the opportunity to participate in a deferred compensation plan that pays her a, quote, guaranteed rate of return, currently in the 5% range, but fluctuates with the prevailing interest rates. This is a Fortune 500 company with a track record of solid financial performance, but I'm a little bit concerned about the safety of such a non-qualified plan, even though we could really use the ability to defer income currently. Um, We have been participating for several years, and I have three sort of related questions, or maybe there's one question and a two-part question. How safe are these plans, and do they ever really default? The second question is, if they are reasonably safe, how much of our overall net worth of investable assets can we contribute? Uh, We have um, also are required or strongly recommended to keep one year salary in her company stock. And between the two, currently, between the deferred comp plan and the company stock, we have a little bit under 10% of our investable net worth tied up in her company in one way or the other. We have no debt and are in the highest income tax bracket and expected to pay less in income tax in retirement. I am 49 years old, and she's 50 years old, and we both work full-time. Thank you for considering our question. It's a great question, Robert. And this is going to be a fun one because uh, we're going to go into an area that very few people uh, really talk much about, the percentage of population that has access to a plan like you're describing is very small. And so this is not commonly discussed, especially in uh, personal finance. And it's a little bit difficult for me to answer without knowing the specifics of the plan, which is the way I like it, because I can talk a little bit about the theory and then keep the onus and responsibility back on you to go and, you know, take the responsibility, as you already are, uh, to make your own decision. So I'll talk a little bit about the theory. Your primary question is about safety. How safe is the plan? And then your corollary is, you know, how do I fit this into my personal financial plan? Let's deal with safety. Uh, it's a tough question to answer because I don't have all the facts, but but I'll give you, the again, the thought process. This sounds, from the way that you described it, like non-qualified deferred comp. And this is one of those magic areas that we love to talk about. We financial planners, it makes us feel really cool to talk about, oh, we'll set up a non-qualified deferred comp plan. (laughs) And just because it's, at least for me, it was always kind of like the sexy side of the business that I always wanted, oh, I'd love to do. Yeah, I set up, I specialize in setting up non-qualified deferred compensation plans for owners of highly compensated. It just sounds cool. And or at least it always did to me. Maybe that's a bit juvenile, but I always thought it sounded cool. And in essence, this what we're trying to do is we're trying to uh, solve the problem of how do we set money aside without setting it aside for all of our employees. So let me define some terms here because in order to understand this, you need to understand a few terms. So let's start with non-qualified. When financial planners or tax wonks use that term, it has a very specific meaning. And in this context, non-qualified means that this is a plan which is not governed by the rules of what we call ERISA. ERISA stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. This is a law that was passed in 1974, and it established all kinds of standards and rules for employee benefit programs. So we usually just refer to it as ERISA, E-R-I-S-A. And this is actually an extremely complex 
area of planning. Uh, it's very specialized and is very important for companies to make sure that they are in compliance with ERISA. And depending on the type of plan that you have, the compliance may be simple and straightforward, or it might be uh, more challenging and, and difficult. ERISA can cover essentially any kind of benefit plan. Uh, it can cover health plans. It can cover uh, you know, retirement schemes, uh, you know, such as, you know, what we're most used to is 401ks, 403bs. Those are the ones we're used to. And there's all these detailed rules that have to be followed. Uh, I'm not an ERISA expert. Technically, I guess I'm supposed to be. I did a a designation that's called a uh, registered employee benefits consultant. And so technically, I'm supposed to be. But uh, all I know after reading two massive textbooks on it is that I don't know what I'm talking about. And (laughs) I'm going to leave it to the experts that practice in a day in, day out. And I read read the textbook and pass the exams, and it's 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 such arcane, difficult information that I just I, I only have the basic concepts of it. Uh, so uh, the plans that people are used to participating in, again, four hundred one ks, four hundred three bs, we call these qualified plans, and these qualified plans uh, fall under the purview of ERISA rules, and the ERISA rules ensure that that uh, all employees are treated equitably. That's the basic function of ERISA, is to make sure that you don't have some uh, filthy business owner who is, uh, you know, specially giving special treatment with one fancy-dancy benefit to two favorite employees, and then, you know, just completely destroying the rank-and-file employees that are actually the backbone of his business. That's the whole point of ERISA. And so you've got all of these different classifications. You've got the top hat rules. You've got highly compensated employees who are highly compensated employees who are not. You've got all these ratios and things that that indicate it. But basically, if your plan falls under ERISA, then it needs to treat all of your employees uh, in a in a like manner. You can't uh, you can't discriminate in favor of your key employees. You can't discriminate in favor of uh, your wife and your wife's brother who work at the company and give them a special package that you're not offering to everybody else. You have to treat everybody alike. Otherwise, your plan is disqualified. And if you're out of ERISA compliance, it's just a world you don't want to be in. But if you just simply choose to avoid ERISA, then you can you have a little bit more flexibility, but you also have some limitations. In order to actually avoid ERISA, then a plan must be must meet these two qualifications. It must be unfunded and it must be maintained by an employer primarily for the purpose of providing deferred compensation for a select group of management or highly compensated employees. So I'm going to define these terms in just a second, but it's important that you recognize that specifically in order to get out of ERISA compliance, which is where all of the government rules and regulations are to protect the so-called working man, the common, you know, the common worker, uh, you need to – there's going to be some additional risk involved. And these plans need to only be available for your highly compensated employees or for a select group of management. So that's the key is where you mentioned that your wife is an executive at a publicly traded utility company. That's why she has access to this type of plan. Now, let me additionally now define that term I said it must be unfunded. When we use the word unfunded in employee benefits, it has a very specialized meaning. For tax purposes, the distinction between a funded plan and an unfunded plan 
simply involves the question of whether the employee has received property from an employer or simply received the employer's promise to pay in the future. And for income tax purposes, the treatment of a transfer of property is very different from the transfer of a simple promise. If the employer transfers property to the employee, then the amount of the tax and the timing of the taxation, that's determined under uh, IRS Code Section 83. And in essence, uh, Section 83 simply says that if an employer transfers property to an employee as compensation for services, then the employee is taxed on the fair market value of that property in the first year in which there is no substantial risk of forfeiture. I've mentioned that little um, lingo on the show previously, the substantial risk of for- forfeiture. That's the doctrine that de- that uh, actually is applied to see when does this transfer occur. And so uh, for income tax, again, if when the employer transfers the employee uh, – as comp- transfers the property to an employee as compensation for services, then, then you're taxed on the fair market value of that property in the first year in which there is no substantial risk of forfeiture. So what would be an example of this? Well, be your paycheck or your wife's paycheck in this example. So as soon as she receives the paycheck, then uh, she's taxed on that uh, in that year because there's no substantial risk of her losing it. There's no substantial risk of forfeiture. She has the paycheck and now she's going to be taxed on it which is the whole goal what you're trying to do you said I could really avoid I could really use the ability to defer the tax so here's the key to defer taxation on property that is transferred as compensation then the employee must have a risk of forfeiture so uh, uh, that's uh, that's when we're dealing with property but to defer so then, but the flip side is when we're to defer taxation on a simple promise, then we get into uh, a different code section, not section 83. We get into uh, the requirements of code section 409A, which is one of the uh, code sections that governs a lot of these plans. And then we've also got to deal with the what are called the constructive receipt rules, is when does the actual employee actually have constructive receipt of the property and dealing with the, the promise and the property. So the definition of a funded plan uh, so we're you know, we're trying to define unfunded and funded the definition of a funded plan for tax purposes draws that line between what is a promise to pay versus what is actual property that's transferred if we're dealing with a promise to pay then we're dealing there under constructive receipt and when does the employee actually constructively receive the property and uh, anything different than that is covered by section 83 which is what we're all used to dealing with so in a tax sense, a plan is unfunded if there's no fund of any kind set aside. But it's also considered unfunded even if the employer has set aside money or property to the employee's account, as long as the assets are available to the employer's unsecured creditors. The assets can be protected against the employer itself, or they cannot be, but they must be available to the employer's unsecured creditors. So in essence, the IRS doctrine says that in an unfunded plan, the employee's rights to any asset set aside must be no better than those of an unsecured creditor of the company. And this makes sense. Uh, So again, remember what we're trying to do. So we're trying to defer taxation. So to defer taxation, we have to make sure that the employee doesn't receive the money. But 
so we got to make sure it's okay. Set aside. Employees not receiving it. And there has to be a substantial risk of forfeiture. Property has to be available to the company's creditors. And because this is a fairly flexible arrangement, uh, we've got to make sure that uh, unlike the qualified plans where it's set aside, we've got to make sure that the company's not just going to go ahead and uh, tuck money aside. So let me compare the two examples. In a, let's say if we're doing an ERISA qualified plan versus an, a non-qualified plan, an unfunded non-qualified plan. In an ERISA plan, let's assume that your wife is at this utility company and she's participating in her 401k. When she's tucking that money aside into the 401k, and then all of a sudden, her utility company goes bankrupt, and the creditors come calling. And they say, hey, listen, you've got all this money here in the pension accounts and these 401k funds. We want that money to pay our, our, our bills. Well, the answer in that case is no. That money is separated and it's protected in a trust. It's actually There is actually a trust that's established that holds those 401k dollars. Uh, so the money is protected in the 401k. But... Uh, in exchange for that, the rules are very, very specific. All the employees have to be covered, and so you can't have key management all of a sudden tucking you know, $400,000 into that 401k. That's why there are the restrictions there, according to the tax doctrine. Now, on the flip side, a non-qualified plan, a non-qualified deferred compensation plan is very flexible. It can be started. It can be stopped all the time. Unlike a 401k, which you have to go through all these hoops to set up, you can they can start it. They can stop it. They can set one up for one employee. You can set up others for multiple employees. So in this case, in order to avoid the abuse, you can't have this plan protected from the claims of creditors because if the key management knows that the company's going down, all they do is you just take all the company assets, funnel them over here into the plan. Look, hey, it's covered. And they walk away... You know, rich, fat, and happy, and the creditors get stiffed. So that's the all. I know I've used all the technical lingo, but that's the doctrine essentially that's that's actually um, being followed. Is they're trying to protect from the key management being able to tuck money aside into these non-qualified accounts and saying, "Well, these are protected from creditors." So let's get out of the weeds. Uh, the biggest danger with non-qualified deferred compensation plans is that they're simply not secure for the employee. The money is available as part of the company's general operating fund. Now, it may be accounted for in a separate manner. So it's, I assume your wife has a separate account, which is being calculated based upon uh, you know, per individual performance, maybe of some kind of fund. Uh, and so it's it's technically separate. But the reality is that if you have a couple, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars in there, that money is not actually hers until she actually receives it. It's still the companies. And so from an accounting standpoint, they might actually be an accounting ledger that's illustrating a balance of $400,000, but company management could have chosen to employ that $400,000 into the purchase of a new power plant uh, or, or whatever they've decided is a good use for the money. So that's the, that's the trade-off. In exchange for not being taxed on the income currently, you give up control of the income. And you don't have the ability to get it uh, to get it until the future, and so there's some chance that you're going to lose it. And because you have that substantial risk of forfeiture, you're not currently being taxed on it. That's how it works. As soon as your 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 wife no longer has that substantial risk of forfeiture, as soon as she has the money, and it's a sure thing. Well, at that and that at that time, you will be taxed on it. That's fundamentally how they work with the tax doctrine behind it. 
And so the answer to your question is how safe is it? That's a hard question to answer because the reality is you do have a substantial risk of forfeiture. It is possible that you could lose the money. And that's why you're getting the tax deferral. That's how it works. In order to get the tax deferral, you have the risk of loss. If you give up the risk of loss, you also give up the tax deferral because now you've received the property and now that property is going to be taxed. So what do you do? Uh, How do you look at it? Well, this is where it depends on very much on the company. And the first thing you've got to look at is you've got to say, how strong is this company? Is this company uh, financially strong? Is it financially viable? Is it well run? There are some different ways of actually funding these accounts, and I'm going to go through them in just a second, but the key is they don't actually have to be funded. Technically, they are unfunded. There is no separate trust that is established and set aside where the money is just protected. Uh, These assets are part of the general assets of the employer. Now, the employer may choose to handle them in a separate way and account for them uh, and set them aside in 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 a separate account, and that's probably a good thing. But uh, they don't have to. These are part of the general assets of the company. So you very much are dependent on the general, you know, how strong is the company. And let me give you an ex- let me use a layperson's example to make this clear. If I work for, you know, the big utility here uh, where I live is uh, FPL. No, it's NextEra now. So let's just say it's NextEra. If I work for NextEra, which is a large utility company, and the president of NextEra comes to me and says, Joshua, you're just a marvelous employee. Listen, we're going to offer you this special deal. If you fulfill the terms of this employment contract, we're going to offer you an additional $15,000 of employment, uh, excuse me, $15,000 per year of retirement income uh, every year of retirement. That promise has some weight because NextEra is a large, it's a financially viable company, and the employer is making a promise to pay in the future. And that payment might just be made out of the cash flow of the company. There might not be any funds set aside, no reserve account, anything like that. And that could be completely valid. That can be a completely valid example of a non-qualified deferred compensation plan. I am working now in exchange for compensation, which I've deferred for the future, and this is a special plan that's been is set up exclusively for me. I don't have any actual transfer of property. I just have a promise to pay in the future. And so therefore, I'm not taxed. I haven't constructively received any property. So I'm not taxed on the money now. I'll be taxed on the money at 65 when I receive that first $15,000 check. But in the meantime, the company could blow up and you know could close up and blow away. Now, on the flip side, that but that promise still has some strength because it's provided by NextEra Energy. Now, if Joe's Coffee Shop next door hires me and they say, Joshua, you're just this, this genius and we want to hire you and we're going to pay you $15,000 per year from, uh, from, you know, from 65 on, that also falls under all of those same arrangements. We set up a simple arrangement. This is a non-qualified deferred compensation program and there are some rules we have to follow, but I'm trying to keep things simple. Um, and... The value of that promise, in my mind, it's not quite the safe. Joe's Coffee Shop that's just getting started next door is compared to Next Era Energy. Uh, big difference there as far as their financial viability. And so your the ultimate safety and security of the program is based upon the financial health of the employer. Now, what about the deferral? What about the fact that you can defer income into it? doesn't matter. 
That's just a that's just a feature of the plan. Uh, in the same way that uh, a 401k is actually a subset, a type of profit-sharing plan. What most people don't understand about the technical way that the the retirement accounts work is that a 401k is actually a profit-sharing plan with 401k provisions. And those 401k provisions actually permit the employee to defer some of their income and have it set aside. But the employer can just maintain a profit-sharing plan without 401k provisions. Uh, but by being able to add that 401k option there, it's reduced the cost for the employer, and that's why they're quite so they're so common nowadays. So same thing with non-qualified deferred comp. The plan can actually be just a promise to pay, like I outlined, that we'll give you this $15,000 if you perform the requirements of this contract, or I can defer, you know, we'll allow you to defer 10% of your income into this separate account. So what about the funding? Well, there are a couple different ways that these can be funded, and these are the ones that are most commonly used. First, there can be just a simple reserve account that is maintained by the actual employer. And so here there is an actual account that the employer has, and this account can be invested in different types of securities. Uh, Could it be invested in all types of financial securities? There's no trust. So there's no separation here. There's no trust. And the funds are actually fully accessible to the employer and to the employer's creditors. Uh, And so this satisfies the requirements of being unfunded for tax and ERISA purposes. And so this is quite common. There could also be an employer reserve account with employee investment discretion over the account. So under this idea, the employer, the, excuse me, the employee perceives that there's a greater security because they can select the investments that are in the account. They get to direct and say, I want my money in a stock mutual fund, or I want my money in a bond mutual fund, or I want my money in a cash you know, CD account. So that needs to be limited under the technical rules to some fairly broad uh, investment classes. So equities, bond funds, some mutual funds, uh, because you don't want to have the opportunity to select specific individual investments because that could cross the constructive receipt rules. So if I had the opportunity that I'm going to uh, have an account with the level of discretion where I can short uh, Home Depot stock, well, now that's going to cross over, and yeah, you, this tech, the, the IRS would say, well, hey, guess what? You've got this money set aside, but the reality is when you can short Home Depot stock, you've actually pretty much received it. You've constructively received the money, even though it's in the separate account. You control it just as effectively as if it were in your own uh, IRA, so therefore you have it, and that would violate those rules, and we'd lose the tax deferral. So that's another way, though. So the first way, a reserve account that's just simply maintained by the employer, and the employer makes all the choices, or a reserve account maintained by the employer where the employee can direct the investments. The The funds could be deferred into corporate-owned life insurance, and this is called COLI. This is a kind of an interesting area of planning if you are a life insurance agent. We refer to two different types of life insurance planning. One is Coley, corporate-owned life insurance. The other is Boley, bank-owned life insurance. And it's very, this is an interesting type of planning. It's one of those sexy sides of the business. You can do some, it's a very different type of life insurance planning than kind of kitchen table, here's how much uh, life insurance mom and dad need to make sure the kids are taken care of if they, if they die. But under a Coley plan, then we actually put the money into life insurance policies on the employee's life, but the policies are owned by 
and payable to the employer. And these are cash value life insurance policies. They're not term insurance. These are cash value life insurance policies. And this can actually be a mechanism for providing financing for the employer's obligation under the terms of the plan. By using life insurance financing, then the plan can actually provide a death benefit, uh, even in the early years of the plan, which can be really useful to younger employees. That can be a real benefit. So by participating in this plan, I know that, okay, I've secured a death benefit for my family. This can be a valuable part of my deferred compensation. Uh, If I set $10,000 aside just into an investment account, I don't have any death benefit. I got to go buy life insurance. But if I have a death benefit and I have an investment account, that can be useful. So these are often funded with with corporate-owned life insurance. There can also be something set up which, if you are a CFP student, you need to understand uh, the term, what's known as a rabbi trust. And rabbi, like a Jewish rabbi, this was actually, it was, uh, it's so-called because the case that uh, established this as an operating arrangement dealt with a synagogue with a rabbi who wanted to have the money set aside uh, for his uh, retirement. So in essence, a rabbi trust is a trust that's set up to hold property that's used for financing a deferred comp plan. And so the funds are are still available to the employer's creditors, but they're not available to the management of the company. So under this scenario, maybe there's a rabbi trust established. There's a standardized document now. The IRS has provided uh, standardized uh, trust terms that will basically protect the account for greater safety to the employee. They'll protect the account from management being able to come in and say, look, there's this really great deal on this power plant that's going out of business. I don't even know if this happens in the power business, but follow my metaphor. This is a great deal on this power plant that's going out of business. We got a steal of a deal. We're going to buy it at 30 cents on the dollar. So we're going to take all the money that's in these uh, in these uh, you know these deferred comp plans, and we're going to use this to come up with the down payment on the power plant. They can do that if there's not a rabbi trust. Uh, if there's a rabbi trust, they can't do that. But if they go bankrupt, the creditors can still get the money. And then finally, there can be some sort of third-party guarantee that's established. And in this scenario, the employer goes out to a third party and obtains a guarantee to pay the employee if the employer defaults on the obligation. And so that could be a shareholder of the company, a related corporation, or it could just simply be a bank, or they obtain a letter of credit where the bank agrees if the employer breaches its obligation, they'll go ahead and pay the employee out the benefit. Uh, this does raise a little bit of concern uh, that uh, because of the guarantee, then the plan will switch from being unfunded to funded for tax purposes, not for ERISA, but for tax purposes. But if the employee uh, if the employee goes out and gets the third-party guarantee independent of the employer, then it's not formally funded. So again, this is one of those specialized areas, just a little note that you need to be aware of. And obviously, I guess it's more for the general listening audience if anyone's setting one of these up. So you need to ask how this account is funded and see if there are reserves that are held by the employer. But back to your appointment your question on safety this is what determines how safe it is i would boil it down if your company is financially strong then the account is probably as safe as the finances of the company so if you think the company is still going to be here which obviously you do but if you think the company is still going to be here when your wife retires then it's probably pretty safe if the company might not be here when your wife retires well it's not super safe now what is of interest to me is what the 5% rate is asked is based on. So I would say pick up the phone and ask them. Call human resources. 
it might be connected to uh, some sort of rate simply for the convenience of the employer to track the performance of the account. Uh, they might be using some external rate and saying, we'll give whatever this rate is as a crediting mechanism to the account, when in reality, the, the assets are not set aside, they're not invested in anything, or that might, rate might be tied to a specific financial product. So if it's funded with a life insurance contract, that might be the rate that the life insurance company is paying to the uh, to the uh, people in the separate accounts. And so they're just passing that through. I mean, it could be Theoretically, it could be an annuity contract. It could be a guaranteed investment contract, um, a GIC, a, a GIC, guaranteed investment contract. Those are offered by insurance companies. It could be mutual funds, maybe a stock fund, mutual bond fund. I mean, just It's unlikely to be a stock fund with a 5% guarantee. Uh, but just ask. you got to ask. And that's the key. When I was with Northwestern Mutual, I had one of these plans, and I could use the deferred comp plan. And any money that I put into... Uh, the plan would be credited based upon the dividend interest rate that Northwestern Mutual earned off of its general portfolio. So an insurance company has a general account, which is their primary investment account, which is the reserve account for their insurance contracts. They need to fund all of the insurance contracts that remain outstanding. And whatever that portfolio earned, that was what my account was credited. And so it worked out really well. It was a guaranteed rate. It would change. It would fluctuate a little bit year by year, but uh, it was a pretty high rate. And so insurance companies often will offer special types of annuities for these types of plans. Uh, I won't get into all the names, but there's some, there's some unique products, and that may be what this is funded with. Just ask. You got to ask. Um, hopefully, with a little bit of that background, That'll give you a bit of an idea to ask some questions and not feel bad about asking. But in essence, the safety of the promise is based upon the financial security of the company. If your company goes bankrupt, uh, pulls an Enron, WorldCom, whatever, all of the assets that are in that deferred comp plan, as long as it's a non-qualified deferred comp plan, and if I've diagnosed what it is accurately based upon your voicemail, all of those assets are available to the, to the general creditors, the unsecured creditors of the company. So let's answer part two of your question. You said that you've got right now probably about 10% of your investable net worth is tied up in our company. So the question is, is 10% tied up in one company? Is it a lot or is it a little? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. And this is one of those areas where it's very much a gut, uh, a gut call and um, – I'm going to talk a little bit about this in the question, which now that I've stretched these shows into, uh, instead of answering all these questions in one show, uh, it'll probably be Wednesday or Thursday, I'll answer the question from the listener from Bonica in, in Sri Lanka. Actually, it'll be tomorrow. Uh, probably I'll answer the question from listener, the question from Bonica in Sri Lanka. He's out talking about asset allocation in his context. How do you figure out if 10% is too much or is too little? Uh, it's going to depend. It's going to be a lot of it depends here. Uh, depends on how much money you have. 10% of a million dollars is very different than 10% of $20 million as regards your uh, standard of living. You could look at this in two ways. And so I'll paint these two, these two parallels for you. Let's say you have a million dollars of net worth and you lose 10% of it. Well, that's only $100,000. But the reality is, comparative to your lifestyle, the ability for you to have $900,000 versus a million dollars at that lower level of assets, that's going to make a dramatic difference in your lifestyle. But 
you know, 10% of $20 million, if you've got 18 million bucks or if you've got $20 million, is that going to dramatically affect your ability to make the BMW payment? Well, you don't have a, you know, is that a dramatically going to affect your ability to go out and buy the next BMW? It's not going to make much of a difference. Um, you know, 18 to 20, you're all in the same club, uh, but 900 to a million, that's a, that's a, it's a lower real number, but it's, I guess, to my mind, it'd be a higher perceived number as far as lifestyle. Now it's, you could argue that the other way and say, well, it's not really that much money, but $2 million, that's a lot of money. Uh, in my mind, I mean, the other thing that you have to be aware of is that if it's 10% of your net worth, it's probably also 50% or maybe, uh, I mean, you didn't say your position, but maybe your wife, uh, if she's an executive, maybe she's a higher earner or a substantially higher earner than you are. So if it's 10% of your net worth, but if the company goes bankrupt, it's also 50% of your income or 70% of your income, that's going to be a substantial uh, number. But on the flip side, if you actually look at your financial planning, it sounds like you've got plenty of other assets. You've got no debt. You're asking questions. You're listening to shows like this. I'll bet the rest of your portfolio is abundantly diversified uh, among different companies, different sectors that you've planned things out. So I simply don't know how to answer that question. Uh, it's one of those things where I don't have any mental models that would guide me. I would have to look at it personally. And if you knew of some information where you were nervous about this company, then I would start trying to diminish it. Uh, if you knew of something that you were bullish on this company, if you had other assets where you could suffer a wipeout, maybe you'd be okay for more. It's one of those things where I just don't have any, I don't have any mental models to apply to it. If any listeners do, come by and, and note those for me. This is episode 133, so radicalpersonalfinance.com slash 133. And I would love to know any ideas that you have uh, on this subject for, for Robert. But I don't know. I'd, you know, I probably wouldn't want more than 10% tied up there considering that you have sizable incomes and that it's at least half of your income. Uh, I would, if I could conveniently lower it, if you weren't especially bullish on the future of the company, then just keep the one-year salary in stock and don't, don't go more heavily in. I'd pay attention to the company and to the industry. Uh, you know, what happens to this company if oil prices are fall, you know, are dropped? Is this company going to be affected? Affected positively, negatively? You know, frankly, I've, I've reached the end of what I can do on a show like this, and I refer you from here to your financial advisor. Uh, hopefully, you feel a little bit more confident with some of the information just by having a little bit of the technical background to understand. And I hope that this was a, a fun introduction for others of you who aren't familiar with non-qualified deferred comp to kind of have a bit of an intro uh, to it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting world of planning. <laughs> if I were going to go back and do planning. It's definitely one of the areas that I would consider working on. You've got to figure out a different business model because the sales cycle is extremely low. It's extremely complex. And this is one of those things where you need a national presence. Uh, you're going to be working with companies all over the country. And you've got to be extremely expert from a technical perspective. You need a marketing plan that's going to get you in front of the right people. It's one of those things I could never figure out with my resources how to set up the things I needed on the front end. Uh, to kind of crack that nut, uh, but it's one of those it's it's one of those areas where you can do billion dollar deals in the insurance business, and uh, the commission check on billion on billion dollar deals is is a pretty sweet one. Uh, so it's on, on my short list, but I can never figure out how to make it work. Maybe some of you can crack that nut. 
that's it for today's show. I will come back. I've got two questions left. Left. Uh, I'll come back tomorrow, and I'm going to uh, respond to question from Mary on where to incorporate California versus Wyoming and also how to incorporate for Hassan. And then I'm going to answer that question from Bonica, who's living in Sri Lanka, listener to the show, and ask some questions on asset allocation and diversification from his perspective, uh, living in Sri Lanka and trying to apply some of what I talk about on the show to his scenario. I love uh, scenarios like that because they help me to kind of think through and see the principles that exist in financial planning. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com, Twitter at radicalpf, facebook.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. Uh, if you've benefited from today's show, uh, this show is supported by listeners, uh, so I don't have any corporate uh, outside corporate involvement at this point. And so if you benefited from that, uh, I'd be thrilled if you would join the membership program. That's how I'm setting up to pay the bills. And you can find the details of that at radicalpersonalfinance.com slash membership. Thank you to all of you who are listening. I hope that you have a lovely day. Be back with you tomorrow. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not, and is not intended, to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.